to Let's Make the Future, a discussion about future trends, technologies, and their implications for human society. We are coming to you from all over the world. Brought to you by Fling.Asia, urban drone delivery. Get it fast. Fling it. Fling! This episode's future trend discussion topic, healthcare with e-patient Dave DeBronckhart. Hi everybody and welcome to Let's Make the Future. Let's start off with a quick intro round of the regular panelists and then I will introduce our guest for today. This is Hossein Kuhani, a microsystem engineer doing a PhD at Michigan State University and I make some devices that can be used hopefully in future for healthcare. Hi, I'm Michael Curry. I'm one of the producers of the podcast, and I'm an entrepreneur based in Bangkok right now. I do a software for drones, actually, at my business in Canada, where I'm originally from. I got a degree in computer science. My name is Michael Olaroninwo. I'm based in California. I'm currently working on a fintech product for emerging markets. I'm Sarah Phelan. I'm a freelance sign language interpreter, and I'm working in Michigan and really excited to speak with you today. And I am Daniel Valenzuela. I'm currently coming from Munich, where I'm I'm working on the future of factories. So today, I'm really excited to welcome our guest, Dave DeBronckert, better known as ePatient Dave. He is a stage four cancer survivor and well-known activist with regards to patient engagement. He's author of three books, internationally known keynote speaker and reached thousands of people with his viral TED talk. He's also co-founder and past co-chair of the Society for Participatory Medicine and Health Leaders named him together with his doctor in 2009 to the annual list of the 20 people who make healthcare better. A little more than a month ago, the Digital Manifesto was published, which he co-authored with Dr. Bertolan Masco. Dave, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be here. Okay, let's start with today. We're in an era of huge technological and societal changes. Also, in terms of healthcare today, there are a lot of different bits and pieces moving around, some rather small, some rather huge, others rather slow, and others rather fast. Dave, how would you describe today's state of healthcare, and what do you think are currently the most significant and fastest moving bits and pieces that we start experiencing today? Sure, that's an appropriate thing to start with because there's healthcare, there's the business of medicine, there's the culture, the cultural beliefs about how care can be and is delivered, and all of that is changing. The reality is, at one level, the ability to do healthcare depends on a more and more accurate understanding of how the body works, and that is increasing just in extraordinary ways. I mean, every generation brings incredible shifts in the last century and beyond in how much we understand. And yet the delivery system by which knowledge and treatments reach the person who has a problem sometimes really gets in the way of achieving the best possible care. And the culture then, even when the delivery system is optimized and knowledge is flowing well, there are cultural problems that keep both patients and clinicians, not to mention health policy people, from necessarily achieving the best. So it really is like looking into a kaleidoscope and seeing all these different filters and pieces of glass tumbling and forming new patterns. Fortunately, if I have a cold or a sore shoulder or something, I don't have to solve all of that. But reality today is a very simple view would say that information flow with the internet and internet of things and devices and social networks, information flow 
has drastically changed compared to 50 years ago or even 30 years ago. I mean, drastically changed, which enables all kinds of new behaviors and performances. And at the same time, we are democratizing. The people with the problem who in the past had no ability to know or say anything useful are increasingly recognizing that they can know and say and contribute something useful. And even beyond that, they're starting to see, we are starting to see, you yourself might have felt it, that I have a right to say what's important to me and to be listened to. So how's that for a hopelessly vast first answer? That is good because you mentioned a lot of topics that I would love to dive into and that's maybe a good overview to start. I have a suggestion. Yeah. How about I spend a few minutes reviewing the basics of my case because through the unknowable mysteries of the universe, the way that I helped myself survive a fatal cancer happens to contain a lot of these aspects. Yeah, that was the first thing I wanted to dive into. I mean, one of the technologies, as you said, that we already saw heavily kicking in today, the internet, that's basically brought us low barriers to efficiently consume and produce knowledge online, as you said, or to found and enter online communities, for instance, in social networks. That would be a great start if you could tell us a little bit about what your personal story regarding this and what your opinion is on how this relates to healthcare today. Sure. And I want to make clear from the beginning on all of this that unlike some people who want change, I, of course, want change. That's why I'm called an activist. I am not attacking the system as so, you know, there are some people who will say the whole system is just plain not working. Well, I'm alive today because the system achieved its potential in 2007. I had a shoulder x-ray and totally by luck, it happened to show a tumor in my lung near that shoulder. And the tumor turned out to be kidney cancer that had spread all through my body. I didn't feel sick yet, but I was about to. And the best available information at the time, it was not very good information, but the best available evidence said that my median survival was 24 weeks. In that study that had been done, Half of the people in my condition were dead within five and a half months. Instead, in my case, I was diagnosed in January. My kidney came out in March. My treatment, a treatment that usually doesn't work, started in April of that year and ended in July. So six months after my diagnosis, my treatment had ended and I've had nothing since. So now the question of how did this happen? Along the way, an important, and but this is no guarantee. I would never say if you get on the internet, you'll survive cancer. I had a lot of luck. But along the way, my primary physician, once we knew it was kidney cancer, happened to know of a good patient community on the internet because he happens to be, Dr. Danny Sands, happens to be one of the original founders of the e-patient movement, empowered, engaged, equipped, enabled. An e-patient is the opposite of a patient who sits there and says, I don't know, you're the doctor, you tell me what to do. Some people treat healthcare like a car in a car wash. You drive in and you get things sprayed on you and then you drive out. And so I joined this patient community and there was no guarantee that this would save my life. But they said, we know what it feels like. And that was an amazing thing by itself because I'd never talked to anybody who'd had kidney cancer. They said, this is an uncommon disease. You have to find a specialist hospital. There's no sure cure. There's one drug that sometimes cures it. 
usually doesn't work, but when it does, about half the time, the response is complete and permanent. Here I am 11 years later, but the side effects sometimes kill you. And this is why you have to go to a specialist hospital. And here are four doctors in the Boston area where you live who do it. Now, that's useful information. And here's our first hint of the arriving future. Here we are 11 years later. None of that information is in the medical literature even to this day. So the first thing that's starting to happen that is already happening is that useful information exists that goes beyond the literature. And to make the rest of my story short, the specific mechanism, I think about this in terms of You know, if patient engagement is supposed to be the biggest drug of the 21st century, as some people have said, then we need to understand what's its mechanism of action, same as any other drug. Well, consider I qualified to use this drug. Most people don't. And as we were preparing for the treatment to my doctors, I said, the side effects sometimes kill people. How do I prepare? And they said, that's an interesting question. Nobody's ever asked us that. So notice, I didn't go around the doctors. I asked the doctors first. They said they didn't have any information. So I turned to the patients and I got 17 stories from people who had been through this treatment of what the side effects were like for them. And the way it all ended up is a few years later, the BMJ, British Medical Journal, asked me to publish my story. That was a complete surprise. I had no idea I was doing anything unusual. But they asked me to publish my story. So I asked my oncologist, what would you want other doctors to know about my case? Because I don't just want to spout off my own thoughts. I want to change the culture of medicine. And he said, I don't know if you could have tolerated enough medicine if you hadn't been so informed. So here we have my oncologist, one of the best in the world on this disease, saying that he believes information I got from other patients on the internet helped save my life. So that opens the vast world of thinking, well, if that's the case, then how can we make the most of achieving the best possible treatments, including the voices and experiences of people who have no medical training? And that's the thing. That's what opens up this giant world because our entire paradigm of healthcare has been it's hard to become a doctor or a PhD researcher. So, what could patients without that training have to contribute? Thank you. That's a wonderful story. And I'm so happy that it worked out for you and that you're able to be here and speak with us. And I think that story has incredible resonance and has such a great ending. But if I could play devil's advocate for a minute, maybe to help you reinforce your point even further, please. if patients are perhaps in a vulnerable position, they're emotionally vulnerable, emotionally even maybe compromised, isn't there a role for a trusted doctor to tell them what to do? And isn't there an argument for keeping information away from them for their own good. For example, patients might request unnecessary treatments, or they might, in talking to one another, come to some conclusions that go counter to evidence. Like, for example, we see these anti-vaccination movements in the US right now, where patients are actively refusing to listen to the advice of their doctors. I wonder if it's possible for the pendulum to swing too far in the direction of patients and control of information and talking to one another. We could have an entire separate hour-long 
discussion on this. You're absolutely right. So you're absolutely right regarding the issues of certainty. But on the other hand, I'm going to need to ask you to rewind a few of the subtopics in there. My colleague in the e-patient movement, a wonderful woman named Susanna Fox, who is on her own now. She used to work at Pew Research. She had a brilliant observation about the vaccine problem. We all agree. I think anybody with a mind that's at all scientific agrees that certainty and reliable thinking are important in understanding how to, I mean, that's the scientific revolution, right? But she pointed out the smoking gun in the vaccine problem was that the peer review process completely failed. That journal failed to detect that the data was fraudulent. It was forged. And so the anti-vaccine people latched onto that and said, aha, see, we told you a top scientific journal has published that vaccines cause autism. And just as with any other finding that needs to be reversed, it caused horrible problems. The whole issue, and think carefully about this, because this is part of a much larger global political change. Democracy means people get to have a voice, even if they're stupid. All right. And in the United States current political situation, there are a lot of people on both sides of the aisle who think that the other people are all stupid. And indeed, that is the challenge. One thing is certain. And again, we could go on for an hour just on this subject. One thing is certain. I had an epiphany about paternal caring when my granddaughter was born. One of the wonderful results of me surviving is I got to walk my daughter down the aisle at her wedding and I got to become a grandfather. And 10 weeks after, people talk about paternalism as if it's a nasty, arrogant thing. And indeed, maybe there are some nasty, arrogant, paternalistic people. But when I saw my granddaughter in the backseat of a car at age 10 weeks, just at the age where the beautiful, you will love me forever smile is coming out that child's face. I realized she's sitting in the back seat in a car seat facing backwards and she's being taken where she needs to go. Now, that's essential because she has no capacity to do any of that. But now consider the World Bank, the definition of empowerment that they use is increasing people's capacity to make choices and take effective action. So as that child who now is, she proudly says that she is 4.8 years old now, because her mother is a science teacher and has taught her decimals. She has opinions. <laughs> she has the ability to choose clothes out of her dresser. Her mother doesn't always agree, that's for sure. But it would be a mistake. Keep her in the back seat because she might make mistakes. Now, having said that, I always turn to my doctors. In our society for participatory medicine, the symbol is a handshake. I don't think I'm an oncologist. To this day, you know, I had kidney cancer. To this day, I don't know what creatinine does. But changing the role so that the person who has the problem begins to have a voice does not mean we reject expertise. And one last item on that, indeed, People wonder these days, we talk about patient-centered care. Patient-centered care to me means you don't just do the same thing to me as everyone else. Sometimes, I know some people don't want to think about their choices. 
They just want somebody else to decide, and that's fine with me. Right. Uh, my goal in all of this is how do we help healthcare achieve its best potential? Yeah. Thanks for listening. Makes sense, yeah. Thanks for sharing. That's all very, very intense and touching uh, story, really. I mean, this is, I always thought I would be, you know, like the most annoying patient because I always ask so many questions when I'm at the doctor. As a mathematician, I always try to really understand everything about a certain condition. So I always do my research online and I always go over time with my doctor so I can ask all the questions. And I've always wondered how I compare to other people, if I'm the most annoying patient or not. But yeah, <laughs> maybe now thinking everything one step further than the patient engagement that you mentioned One topic which I find absolutely fascinating is that more individuals today are becoming consumers of, let me call it, medical gadgets that have become financially accessible very recently, actually. Mm -hmm. People are sending saliva, blood, even poop per mail. Maybe also email soon. Let's <laughs> not sure about that. But uh, you can today, you can, you can request, analyze and leverage data regarding DNA, blood values, allergies, gut health, etc., that very short ago were not so easily available at all. At the same time, this comes with a lot of responsibility, particularly because consumers might not be educated enough to deal with this enablement. Dave, how do you assess the rise of this democratization of medicine? It overlaps to what we discussed, but now particularly with all the rise of technology in mind. I think this is also what often falls under the term biohacking movements. Yes. And again, this is a superb question with many turns of the kaleidoscope to see different pictures in the patterns. And, you know, when I use that metaphor of a kaleidoscope, I don't do it casually. Really, the reality, we have multiple dimensions in this chaotic, and I mean chaos as in chaos theory. I don't mean out of control. There are so many interacting factors here. In my book, Let Patients Help, I have a number of simple statements like, for instance, we perform better when we're informed better. And the text of that says that nobody can perform to the top of their potential, doctor or patient, if they're lacking some relevant information. And that's a very simple statement, hard to argue with, but it explains, for instance, why if there's a mistake in the medical record, a good doctor can prescribe the wrong drug. Right. Yeah. So that teaches us that it's really important to know whether what's in your medical record is correct or not. Similarly, it is a mistake with patients to think that when they have no information, they can't do anything useful and then conclude. So why bother giving them any information? Now, that sounds a little silly, but it's true. The chief information officer of my hospital believes that there's no point in giving patients the information in their medical record because they wouldn't know what to do with it. Well, and I say, well, like, try me. Besides, former Vice President Joe Biden said to Judy Faulkner, the head of Epic last year, she said, well, you wouldn't understand it. And what are you going to do with it? You know, the Epic, the big medical record system. And he said, it's none of your business what I'm going to do with it. It's my data. Sorry, would you repeat the point of your question? Because I went on a tangent. No problem. It's still very interesting. So um, like technologies that actually allow us to get data about our DNA. I mean, the question of the ownership, maybe we'll talk about this later. But for now, just uh, the, 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 the interest in the democratization or decentralization of yeah. medicine and healthcare. Yes. 
we have access now to many little pieces of information. I mean, if you send saliva to 23andMe, the consumer DNA company, they're not sequencing your entire genome, but they're giving you a few things. We have our hands on pieces of information, and nobody is completely certain yet what it means. On the other hand, there are isolated spots in breast cancer. There are certain genes that are very significant and are easy to reliably test for. I would say we're in the beginning of a new era where we have access to individual facts or more than individual facts that were not possible 50 years ago, and we're not entirely sure yet what it's going to mean. We do know some things, and I'll bet, I mean, we certainly 10, 20, 30 years from now, when my granddaughter is an adult, she will have access to just an absurd amount of information that we don't today. And at the same time, if I can talk briefly about fitness devices, there is an important, like I used to wear a Garmin wristband, now I use a Fitbit. And what we're finding Of course, the Silicon Valley people and many doctors like to say, well, I read an article and most Fitbits end up being sold used on eBay. Therefore, (laughs) these things have no use. Now, that's a gigantic mental error to say, therefore, these things have no use. I have never been an athletic or physically fit person in my life. And three years ago, I got diagnosed as pre-diabetic. And buying a device did not change my behavior. But I also got into a behavior change program, and I lost 40 pounds, and I became not pre-diabetic anymore. And it was assisted by, not caused by, but enabled by the Fitbit that I have and the app and being able to easily check how many steps I've had. And I also, for about six months, I tracked my diet, not in great detail, but it was enough to change my life. So the future, there are a lot of people who want to think, I don't need to change my thinking because sometimes the new stuff doesn't work. But you'll never see the future if you think that way. So what we really ought to be doing when we see something new happening is thinking, how did that happen? Thomas Edison, when he was inventing things, would occasionally write in his notebook just the big word phenomena with an exclamation mark. Like something happened. What was that? Hmm. Yeah, I think all these wearable technologies, I mean, that's just such an easy way like to acquire mountains of data. That's super interesting to me. And I have to agree. I'm also wearing a Samsung Gear Fit smartwatch. And that changed a lot of my perspectives, particularly on sleep for me. And I've also, you're right, now that you yeah. said it, I twice tracked just for a week. I tracked my food intake in terms of micro- micronutrients and everything. And that was so eye-opening, you realized that you were so wrong on so many assumptions that you were doing right because you felt like you were eating healthy, but you're actually getting sometimes too much, too little calories. And it's very eye-opening. Very, I would suggest this to everybody to do it. Yeah. I want to give you two very short versions. Listeners can Google these of things. These are so extreme that you have to really stop and think with your scientific mind, what happened here? So the first one is a movement in the type 1 diabetes world called Open APS, Open Automated Pancreas System. You can search that hashtag, look at their website. This is people with type 1 diabetes who have hacked 
into their digital devices, their glucose meters and their insulin pumps, and they wrote their own software that they have donated to open source to do all the calculations and automatically dose themselves with insulin. And if you look at the screen captures that they tweet from their devices on that hashtag, you'll see that they have blood sugar that is better controlled than a person with a working pancreas. And they have done this entirely without any doctors involved. Of that, you really have to ask your science mind, seriously, is that really happening? What does it mean if somebody with a deadly condition can solve their own problem better than the industry? The initial hashtag when they started that was, we are not waiting, because they were tired of the industry saying it'll be just another five years. So there's one example. The other one, people will commonly listen to my story and say, well, but Dave, you're a white, upper-middle-class, college-educated, MIT graduate, male in the United States of America, blah, 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 because they are experiencing cognitive dissonance. Their mind is saying, wait a minute, scientists create value in medicine. People without college educations can't do that. Now, Google the name Kim, K-I-M, Goodsell, G-O-O-D-S-E-L-L. She has two rare conditions, and against her doctor's orders, she kept Googling and Googling, and after years of this, she successfully found a common genetic cause for this, and her doctors then created a poster for a scientific session with her as one of the authors, and here's the paradigm-cracking pain in the head. The conference then would not allow her to register for the conference where her poster was being shown because she didn't have enough medical credentials. Ha ha, isn't that funny? Wow, it's, it really goes to show you how medicine is got this mystique about it. And wow, like maybe, you know, if Wikipedia can be accurate, then why can't crowdsourced medical insights be accurate as well? I think Michael Alorinino has a question for you, uh, Dave. So I just wanted us to dive into technology a little bit more and talk about the technologies that are making a difference in healthcare right now and that might do so in the future. You mentioned open APIs, you mentioned that we discussed devices and wearables. I just wanted us to talk about more about nanobots and robotic surgery, gene editing, and how the internet of things might change medicine in the future. Maybe you have some insight into those. So those are at an entirely different level. And the only thing that's vaguely like that that I have ever touched on is the work that's being done with 3D printed medical things, whether it's I'm sure you've seen the 3D printed artificial hand for an amputee and so on. My daughter is a high school science teacher, and she has been able to use CRISPR-Cas9 at a summer science program she got into at MIT. That's not robotics per se, but it certainly is, you know, the idea of something from outside crawling around in the tissues or even within the cells. So it's funny because right. I see everything nano like that as a new way for the doctors and PhD researchers to do what they've always done without the patients being involved. But it's hard to imagine that 50 years from now, we would not have had a case where somebody at home created their own nanobot of one sort or another. I mean, it all is very much science fiction. That's the sort of thing where I think 
my colleague Bercy has more awareness of what's going on today because that technology isn't in the patient's hands these days. And that's where I think. Talking about patient hands, one overarching topic, I guess, is data today, be it from robots, from gadgets, from wearables, from whatever. So there's so much potential in this data for the patient, but also basically for society as a whole. I don't know exactly. For example, I have this project from Google X in mind. I'm not sure what it's called exactly, but they basically meta-analyze the data coming from wearables and phones, but also from clinics and everything, and try to make this huge like work in progress or a live study that has so many participants, but there's basically a ridiculous amount of potential in that. With that in mind and everything that we discussed earlier, there comes... The huge question for me, who will actually own the data? Who should own the data? What are some possible scenarios here? Well, this is on the verge of becoming a war in the United States because see, it was one thing when all of a patient's records existed on paper in a doctor's office. Legally, starting in you know, the, the big law that has to do with data access in the U.S. is Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And its regulations include that they have to let me see a copy of everything. And a lot of people, it's funny, this has a lot to do with the finances of healthcare in the U.S. A lot of people don't realize that that all started back in 1996 with this law that said you can take your health insurance to another company. And that means you have to be able to take your medical records because otherwise, how could your insurance cover you? Well, the problem today is as the information gets computerized, it becomes technologically easier to move a terabyte of data, a gigabyte of data than if it were all on paper or films. But that then reveals that there are often major social and cultural objections to that because many doctors, it turns out, don't want you to take your business elsewhere. So now, and in the U.S. also, there are significant legal issues. I don't know how universal they are having to do with the legal concept of ownership. If I literally own my data, then you can't do anything with it without my permission. And that gets into all kinds of complicated problems that I don't understand. I have an attorney colleague in our Society for Participatory Medicine, David Harlow, who is very astute on that. What a lot of us are thinking is regardless of who owns it, I want complete, unlimited access to every bit of it, literally every bit. And if I find mistakes in it, I want the holder of that information to be required to fix the mistake. Now, the Geisinger Medical System in Pennsylvania was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal health section a few years ago. They did a complete audit of several thousand records and found that 85% of them included a mistake. Some of them were minor, but some of them were not minor. And that can obviously, as I said earlier, if the information in the record is wrong, then the best doctor in the world can prescribe the wrong medicine and do harm. So I want to just step back briefly to this illustrates how the cultural problems, the cultural context in the kaleidoscope can change what the technological question looks like. Because yeah. many doctors have believed that the record that they accumulate in the process of taking care of you is their property. And we, we want to know activated patients 
especially if I'm taking care of my daughter, my granddaughter, or my mother, I want to know what's in the chart so I can help prevent errors. I really like how you talk about not just the ideological sort of paternalistic reasons why institutions and doctors try to hold patient information away from patients, but also the commercial reasons why they may have a strong incentive to try to make the information not easily available. Like as in your article, Over My Dead Body, Why Reliable Systems Matter to Patients, you're talking about how commercial systems don't have much incentive to make the data available because just like with doctors, they want to make it hard for patients to change and introduce high switching costs for patients. So all that makes a lot of sense. But I think there's another question now from Michael. So go ahead. So I was going to switch gears a little bit. Given the pace of evolution of healthcare technology, as we've discussed a few, should we be looking at changing the way we educate physicians and healthcare professionals? Should we focus more on the sciences? Should they now become data analysts? Or should they focus on emotional intelligence? Or should we just have doctors who are going to be running the business of healthcare? So, I mean, what insights do you have about how the way we currently educate doctors will change in the future? Well, that's another $600 billion question. Uh, that number, of course, is just is fictional. Part of my work, so a little bit of my background on how I moved from cancer into this work may be useful. In 2007, I thought I was dying and instead I recovered. And in 2008, I started learning about healthcare. And then in 2009, I discovered that there was a bunch of garbage in my medical record, and I wrote a blog post about it and ended up on the front page of the newspaper just before a conference in Boston where I was scheduled to give a little talk, and I ended up as a surprise celebrity and started getting invited to give speeches and testify in Washington. All of this was just head spinning to me. Now, I never asked to give a speech anywhere, and I've been to over 500 events in 18 countries now, and I've had a lot of conversations with people that have let me see something about how they think about healthcare. Well, I've ended up reading several dozen books about the history of science and the history of medicine to try to understand why people, smart people, think the way they do. And I need to ask you to repeat your specific question because this was leading up to that. What was your question? My question was really about how do you think that the way we currently educate physicians should change in the future? Yes, thank you. So one thing I learned is that for a long, long time, medicine was based just on, you know, the best advice came from the most respected doctor. And amazingly, there really wasn't much science to it. And that continued all the way into the 1900s. The worst example of that was the practice of radical mastectomy for breast cancer patients, where women for decades were brutalized, truly butchered, just because this Dr. Halstead said it was the right way to do it and everybody knew he was right. And then when they finally did a controlled study, they found out that radical mastectomy had zero benefit at all. Now, when that happened, I believe it was in the 1980s, we already have generations of doctors who've been through medical school who are out there practicing and had not been taught anything about what we now call evidence-based medicine. Now, meanwhile, we have this world where in the last 15 years, the editors of four major journals, New England Journal, the BMJ, Lancet, and JAMA, have all said publicly that a lot of what shows up in their journals is bad science. 
So now, you know, we think about, well, patients get bad information from the internet. Well, how it's more frightening to me that doctors get bad information from journals sometimes. So now to get back to how do we train a new generation of doctors in information theory, information flow, the importance of this, because we just had a Facebook thread. If you remind me, I'll send you a link to it just this weekend of people with dozens of stories of how information got lost in the system and was not present. And either a problem happened or the patient and family were being careful, so they prevented a problem. And just today, there was a new thing on LinkedIn that showed the difference between 50 years ago, the vast majority of doctors practiced in an office with one or two doctors, and that population has been declining as the number that work in a hospital with 100 or more doctors has been increasing. The doctors who were very successful as a single practitioner, and these are the ones I grew up with that took care of me all my life, need to learn different skills and students need to be taught different skills in order to function as a team member where it's essential that the important information gets carried forward. Because right now, failure to carry a piece of information forward can be as disastrous as a wrong diagnosis. So we need Dave, to teach doctors. you made me think of something. Go ahead. I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Did you want to finish your sentence before no, I cut in? No, no, no. I'll talk forever. So go ahead. <laughs> I love like you're talking about, you know, what we need to teach doctors. And I'm glad Michael asked that question because I was wondering the same thing. And I was wondering it along the lines of you're talking about flow of information and not missing anything, following evidence-based practice. But I'm wondering what kind of social training doctors might be given to kind of steward them into this era where patients are more involved and almost more trusted to have a role in their own care. In our society, we are starting an initiative to work that kind of skill into the medical education curriculum. In my book, Let Patients Help, it's not an answer to the curriculum thing, but I asked my doctor, see, this is participation. Dr. Danny Sands asked him to add some tip sheets. So the tips part of my book, the first page is 10 things e-patients say to be involved in their care. And then we have 10 things from Dr. Sands, 10 things doctors say that encourage engagement. And he also added 10 things doctors say that discourage engagement. You know, I'd be happy to send you a link to that as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested answer? in that because I'd heard. Yeah, it is. I just wondered that because I'd heard of doctors. I have some friends that just like recently became doctors and they said, you know, I just hate it when a patient comes in and they think they know because they read on Wikipedia. And so that was something that in my head was a negative. Like, just as you said in the beginning, the doctors, the expert don't cut in at all. And I think that's probably a conception that's probably so hard to break. And yet, this is why when I'm advising friends, patient colleagues on this, I always include, you know, if we want doctors to have empathy for our situation, we need to have empathy for the doctor's situation. You know, one of the, the e-patient white paper was a manifesto that the founder of our movement was working on when he died unexpectedly in 2006, and his colleagues finished it, including Dr. Sands. One of the anecdotes in there was he talked to Donald Lindbergh, the director of the National Library of Medicine, who said that there's too much information for every doctor to know everything. And this was calculated back in 2004. 
there were 800 articles being published every day. So he said, if I read two of them after a year, I'd be 400 years behind. And eight years later, in 2012, the Institute of Medicine said there were 2,200 articles being published every day. The lesson here is it's no insult to a physician if a less trained person has seen an article that they haven't. And what you commonly find here, yes, individual people with no experience and no savvy are likely to come up with useless observations, the same as if they're shopping for a car and they've never read articles about what to look for. And the same as in democracy, when people become informed and start talking with each other and become more sophisticated in their thinking, it becomes possible for citizens to contribute real value. I'm sure that those doctors have been taught in the old culture that either says or implies people with training know what they're talking about, i.e. we're right, and people without training don't. Well, um, one other amazing fact is that the Institute of Medicine published a paper in 2001 documenting they had gone back and looked at actual billing records because they wanted to assess when new advice is published, how long does it take for doctors to start using it? You know, because they'll bill for doing the new thing. And what they found was that on average, it takes 17 years for half of doctors to start doing new things. Wow. So if you want to say, if you want to say patients don't know what they're doing, then if our goal is to do the best possible, you also got to look at, well, how does that compare with doctors in reality? And of course, I'm not saying all doctors are slackers or fools or incompetent. You know, the reality is we have a huge number of people getting old today because people like me are being saved. I didn't die, so I'm getting old. Hmm. So the trick then for young doctors to be taught is realize that we no longer have the old reliable pathway of the medical institution will get the best knowledge to the point of need, and we need to rethink how we go about that. Yeah. Patients need to have a good bedside manner, too, and having empathy in the suggestions that they read about. I'm glad you said that. Yeah, it is. It's about having a good relationship. Yeah, true. It's also uh, very interesting. As I said earlier, I'm always one of these question askers, and doctors respond very differently in terms of openness and, you know, support to these type of questions. And I think, yeah, that's uh, a lot of empathy, but also a willingness to accept that they might not know everything, that sometimes something beyond the literature, although there's risk, might be an interesting try. I want to give you one quick tip on that point since you brought it up twice. Part of the old assumption that we all live in is that dialogue like that should happen between patient and doctor during a doctor visit. Mm -hmm. What a lot of medical practices are offering now is somebody you can talk to between visits, mm -hmm. whether it's a nurse or in some insurance companies have it. So the way to get at this is ask your doctor or your doctor's office, is there someone I can talk to between visits to get answers okay. on questions that I have? Thanks very much. That's a good point. I have at least one doctor that has offered me his mobile phone number, so I guess uh, that works too. Wow. <laughs> Wow. All right. Let's um, maybe the, the last thing I wanted to talk about. So until now, we talked a lot about the pillars of the future of healthcare, which kind of independent of the technology will remain somehow for one doctors, that's patients, and that's also data. Lastly, I would like to add another topic that for me falls into this perspective that we have had so far in our discussion, 
And that's basically taking a step back. And I would really love to know with everything that we learned today, how should governments and companies position themselves to successfully deal with the upcoming major changes in healthcare? Well, governments are involved in politics, and that's a world that uh, has strange problems. But if we assume for simplicity that we don't need to worry about political arguments, which, of course, is a tough situation, especially in the U.S. these days, but also elsewhere. If we assume that what we're trying to do is keep people healthy and get people healthy as efficiently as possible, a large part of what needs to be done is to help healthcare achieve its potential. And that means, for our purposes in this conversation, being conscious in our minds of what are our assumptions about how you should go about this. I think we've demonstrated in this conversation that it's no longer valid to think that healthcare is achieved by a patient going and sitting down with a doctor one-on-one and having these conversations, which are hard to schedule and all of that, that really good things can happen in all aspects of medical science and health and care if medicine is viewed as a partnership. One thing you'll find, by the way, is that if a patient starts out as a passive person, like a car in a car wash, they won't think of having thoughts of their own. But as they start to realize that's possible, partly because their doctor invites them, you know, have you ever had a doctor ask you if you found any websites that are useful? That's what my doctor does. They Anyway, start to think, how can we optimize, how can we re-engineer how information gets to the doctor, to the patient, and develop the citizen's capacity to take care of themselves and find information in a way that's better and better. And now you can, from a government perspective, you can certainly put in regulations that encourage data sharing, encourage the data moving among all the people who might have need for it, might have use for it. In terms of what you will fund, I really encourage people to create new models of simpler care. Not everything has to be a full-bore doctor's appointment in the traditional form. Telehealth is a wonderful thing. Not everything requires that you be face-to-face. I mean, certainly if I break my arm, I'm not going to handle that with Skype, right? But on the other hand, A few years ago, I was giving a speech in Switzerland, and I noticed something strange with my leg. I wondered, did I have a blood clot from the plane flight? So I emailed my doctor, and he said, well, I don't know. What does it look like? And I did use Skype. I pointed my webcam at my leg, and he said, hmm, looks like you should go to the clinic in the Bahnhof, which I did. So open the mind. Don't assume that the way we have practiced medicine in the past is the way that it should be practiced. Learn everything you can about new ways of doing things. Another great example of this is the iPhone attachment that will let a parent look into a baby's ear, an otoscope on the iPhone. And keep in mind that we're discovering new ways of bringing information and people together in this new kind of partnership. Do what we can to encourage that and innovate as we go. Thanks very much. Thanks. That was really enlightening. Nothing warms my heart like hearing somebody, you know, a well-educated, well-informed person 
say that I contributed something enlightening. It's what I live to do. Now, again, I'm, I'm alive because in my case, healthcare achieved its potential, even when the odds were drastically bad. So I am thrilled that I'm getting increasing interest from other countries. I love to speak in other countries. I love to consult with people. So thank you for the opportunity of speaking to your audience. Today. Nice. Thanks to you. I really appreciated this conversation and found it really interesting. And from my part, it's been an honor as well. Dave, it's been an honor to hear from you. I've listened to your TED Talk and I really find your perspective to be not only enlightening, but also really aligns nicely with a lot of other positive notions of freedom and liberty. So I think True. Yeah. it's really great to hear from you personally. One last question our listeners, how can they find out more about the work that you do? And if they want one resource about you, which would that be? Well, aside from the TED Talk, my website is epatientdave.com. And there's videos of past speeches and links to my books. Let Patients Help is a short, simple thing. It's been translated into nine languages, to my amazement, by volunteers. And then our Society for Participatory Medicine is just participatorymedicine.org has lots of resources there. We are a young society. We've never had any substantial funding. We're a bunch of committed people who are working on changing the culture of care. We had our first ever conference last October, and our next one will be this coming October in Boston. Cool. Thanks very much, and congrats to all the achievements of your activism. I really would highly recommend to everybody to watch one of your speeches. I think that you're a great speaker, and I enjoyed every single one of them. So thanks very for good. today's discussion. I just wanted to thank Vape one more time to share his experience with us, and I learned a lot, and I'm looking forward to learn from the resources he suggested about how patients can take part in their healing process. It was great to hear you mention patients needed having to have empathy for the doctor's situation. I think that was one key piece of insight that I would take from this podcast. That was very, very, very enlightening and interesting. Nice. As I said, I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Dave, for coming on the show. And thanks to everybody for participating. Okay, thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Let's Make the Future. Featuring the voices of Daniel Valenzuela, Hossein Kuhani, Michael Curry, Michael Oloranimo, and Sarah Palin. Music and editing, Christian Peltonen. Visit us online at letsmakethefuture.com.